Do you know, uh, I, didn't, I did not uh, plan the timing of this message series, but I believe that the Lord has really been impressing upon our hearts and our lives over the last couple of weeks of our need to set our hearts on heaven. And if, uh, if you've uh, just been aware of everything going on with our nation, we've been hearing much bad news in an earthly sense. But for Christians, we understand that nothing that happens with this uh, nation's economy, nothing that happens with the global financial system, nothing that happens with the stock market or the job market or recessions or even depressions can touch what is of lasting and real value for us as believers in Christ. That we have an inheritance in heaven which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for us and we are protected by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. And the world may go up and down, but as Christians, our treasure is in heaven and nothing can touch that treasure. And so we understand if the world goes up and down with the ups and downs of the financial system, and we understand if unbelievers are stressed out about financial security, but for us as believers, our treasure is in heaven. And the other, other bit of good news that I have for you if you're a believer in Christ is... I don't in any way want to minimize the pain of the financial loss that people are experiencing right now or the difficulties that, and challenges that, are, that we face on a practical basis, but I do want to emphasize to you that if you are a believer in Christ, God has promised to take care of you, and He has promised to meet your basic needs if you are in Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious what you shall eat or what you shall wear or what you shall house yourselves with because the Gentiles all seek these things. Unbelievers are all trying to store up for themselves treasures on this earth because they have no heavenly Father and they have no promise that they will be taken care of. But as believers in Christ, God has said to us, He is going to take care of us. And we are to look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and God takes care of them and how much more does God love us and take, will take care of us. So Jesus said, don't be anxious. You know, the world is going to send you all types of bad news and the world is going to tell you all types of things. You need to understand you have a heavenly Father who is committed to meet your basic needs if you are faithful to seek Him first. And so all of this is very good news for us as believers in Christ We've heard a lot of bad news these last two weeks. I want you to know if you are a believer in Christ, you have reason to rejoice. You have reason to have your hearts at peace and at ease this morning. And all of this brings us back to the doctrine of heaven, doesn't it? You know, the Christian life doesn't make sense if there is no heaven. Uh, Paul even said in 1 Corinthians that, if there is no resurrection and if there is no heaven, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Our lives as Christians make absolutely no sense if we have no heavenly home. And it is right for us to stop and to dwell on our future home and to think about it and to meditate on it and to sing about it and to learn more about it and to explore the wonders of God's Word as it relates to the doctrine of heaven and so let me just begin by asking you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. 
We'll just use this as a launching point for our study this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you that we can look at your word and we can just see what you have taught us about our future home. And Father, we pray that you would use this time in a mighty way to release our hearts from our bondage to the things of this world, that our hearts may be filled with joy as we leave from this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began our series by looking at a basic definition of heaven. And I want you to know that as we go through this series, what I'm really after is your minds as we look at the doctrine of heaven. Um, ultimately, I want to affect your hearts. I want your hearts to be inflamed with a desire to go to be with, in heaven, to be with Jesus. But I want to reach your hearts through your minds. I want you to think differently about heaven than you have before. Um, we began this series. And in order for us to change our minds and to have our thinking changed according to an accurate theology of heaven, what we need to do as we look at this doctrine is to apply our minds and to allow the Word of God to transform our minds as we think about our future home. So in other words, what I'm saying to you is that this series is not going to be a heavenly pep rally. I'm not going to just stand up here for five weeks and go, yay, yay, we're going to heaven, let's all get excited, Woohoo! This is going to be a study. We want to think rigorously and apply ourselves diligently with our minds to the doctrine of heaven that we may think differently about our future home, and as a result, we may feel differently about our future home. And so the first thing I want you to think about this morning is the definition that we learned last week. Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body, on a resurrected earth, with a resurrected Christ, accompanied by other resurrected believers. In that definition, we saw five distinct features of the doctrine of heaven. We saw, first of all, that heaven is a resurrected life, that is, eternal life. That is, the life that was given to us in our conversion to Jesus Christ. That is the life, the essence of which is to know and to love and to worship the true and the living God. Heaven is an resurrected life. Secondly, we saw that heaven will be in a resurrected body. First uh, Corinthians 15, Paul makes this very clear. We will be given actual, glorified, physical, resurrected bodies free from the effects of sin and the curse. And if you want to know what your resurrected body is going to be like, go back to the first fruits. The first fruits was the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. In His resurrected body, Jesus ate, Jesus talked, Jesus walked, Jesus conversed with other believers, Jesus did physical things. Jesus in His resurrected body was uh, a, a local being in the sense that He was in one place at one time, even though we understand that Jesus is everywhere in the sense that he is omnipresent. 
you want to know what your future resurrected body is going to be like, go back to the first fruits. The first fruits is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. It is going to be a physical existence, yet free from the effects of sin and the curse. Thirdly, we saw heaven will be on a resurrected earth. It will be on a resurrected earth. In the words of Revelation 21.1, God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. When God says, I'm going to make a new earth, He is not going to make a non-earth. He is going to make an earth, an earth that is real and physical and tangible, just as the earth that we walk on is real and physical and tangible. And dear brothers and sisters, we look out at the world today and we stand in awe and marvel at the beauties and the glories of what God has created in our created nature, in our created world, and just think this is a world that is groaning under the effects of sin and the curse. How much more beautiful and glorious will that resurrected earth be when God creates a new heaven and a new earth that is free from the effects of sin and the curse, a perfect environment for our resurrected bodies to dwell on forever and ever. Fourthly, we saw that we will be with a resurrected Christ because Jesus said, that I'm going away, I'm going to come back and take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. We will be with Christ. We will see Christ for who He is. And 1 John 3 says, we will be like Christ because we shall see Christ for who He is. In other words, to go to heaven will be uh, entering into the state of our glorification. Where in our justification, we were freed from the penalty of sin. In our sanctification, we are freed from the power of sin. And in our glorification, when we go to heaven, we will be free from the presence of sin. No more temptation. No more curse. No more indwelling sin and flesh to wrestle with and deal with. We will be like Christ because we will be with Christ. And fifthly, we saw that heaven will be a company of other resurrected believers. It will be the great reunion of all the saints who have ever lived where father, mother, brother, sister, grandparent, friend, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed on, we will all reunite in perfect fellowship. And in that world of perfect love, we will worship and serve our Lord Jesus Christ forever and forever. Now that was our definition of heaven that I gave you last week. Again, I want you to think on this definition. Uh, Let it soak into your minds. Think according to this theology and let that transform your thinking of your future home in heaven. Now, if you are thinking and if you are applying yourself mentally to the definition that we gave you last week, you may be asking yourself a question. And the question is simply this, Dan, if heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth, then I have a question. What happens in the time period that follows physical death, yet precedes physical resurrection? Okay, if you follow this definition... And you're thinking, okay, I understand. One day I'm going to be given a resurrected body. God is going to make a resurrected earth. He's going to place my resurrected body on the resurrected earth. But wait a second. I'm trying to think through the timeline here. Dan, there seems to be a time period here that we're missing. There is a time period that comes after physical death, yet precedes physical resurrection. 
what happens in that time period? Let me be as, uh, as clear and as specific as possible this morning as we think about this doctrine. Picture in your minds a timeline. And if you're taking notes this morning, you, make it, you can even draw a timeline in your notes. It'll help you out a lot as you think about where we are in our study. If you draw a simple line and you label point A as the, the time of the believer's physical death, you just draw that on a timeline. As you go on the timeline, you can label point B as the time of physical resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, that giant harvest of believers' resurrections that we looked at last week. God is going to take all church-age believers and He's going to resurrect them at one point in human history. That's point B in our timeline. Now, if you look at that timeline, you might be saying, Dan, I understand that after point B in the timeline, God is going to make a resurrected earth and He's going to place my body on that earth and that's going to be my future home. But what happens in the time period between point A and point B? There's a, there's a gap there that we're missing. What happens in that intermediary period? Let's just think, for example, let's say a believer, uh, hypothetically speaking, died in the year 2000. And let's say, hypothetically, that the event of physical resurrection occurs in the year 2100. We don't know when it's going to occur, but let's just say, for example, that's the date of the resurrection of church-age believers. If we look at that, there's... uh, 100 years, that's unaccounted for, right? What happens in that time period that comes after physical death yet precedes physical resurrection? Now, theologians have looked at that time period and that timeline and they have labeled that time period as the intermediate state or as I prefer to call it, the intermediate heaven, The intermediate state is the time period that follows physical death, yet precedes physical resurrection. And that term, the intermediate state, it's not a biblical term. It's a term like Trinity that's not found in the Bible, but describes a a biblical concept. So in other words, theologians have looked at this and they said, wait a second, there's a physical death occurs here in the believer's life. And then we know that sometime in the future, God resurrects the believer from the grave and reunites the body with the soul to, and that will be his state for eternity. But there is an intermediary period there that we haven't covered. Uh, what is the intermediate state? What does the believer experience in that time period? Uh, does the believer have physical characteristics in that time period, even though the believer hasn't received his physical resurrected body yet? Does the believer have awareness of time? Does the believer understand and is aware of earthly events that's going on on the earth while he is in the intermediate heaven? What happens in that time period and what does Scripture have to say about it? I think if you look at that time period, you understand that it's very important for us to understand that time period to understand the doctrine of heaven. 
And we have a natural curiosity as to what's going to happen in the intermediary period before we receive our resurrected bodies. Uh, This is a very practical study for two reasons. Number one, we all want to know what happens when we die. Um, So you might be saying, Dan, I understand. Like one day God is going to resurrect my body and one day God is going to give me a resurrected body on a resurrected earth. But Dan, I'm a little bit selfish here. I want to know what happens to me right after I die. I mean, maybe the resurrection is still a hundred years away after the time of my death. I want to know what happens in that time period. And it's a natural and a good thing to want to know about that. Uh, One Bible teacher, Erwin Lutzer, he wrote a book. It's called What Happens One Minute After You Die. And that's the issue, isn't it? We want to know what happens to me one minute after I die. What is my soul experience? And a second practical reason we want to know about the intermediate state is we want to know what's happened to loved ones who have died. Um, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about what happens to the believer after they die because we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And Paul was being pastoral here and he was saying, look, it's, it's sorrowful to lose a loved one. It's sorrowful to, be, to experience grief when a loved one passes on. And yet, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. I want your grief to be undergirded with strength and a confidence in God's future redemptive plan. And so he says, I want you to know what happens to the believer after he dies. And we want to know about that. Many of us have friends and families who God has taken from this earth and we want to know what has happened to them and what are they experiencing that our hearts would be strengthened with hope even as we grieve over their loss. This is a very practical study. and we want to take a look at this intermediary time period this morning. Now, the first thing I have to say about the intermediate state is that Scripture really doesn't have a whole lot to say about this state in comparison to how much it talks about the new earth. Okay, if we do a broad survey of what Scripture says about heaven, you will find that Scripture says far more and talks far more in detail about our resurrected life on the new earth than it does about this intermediary time period. And if we think about it, It makes sense, right? Because our permanent home is going to be our life on the new earth. Our permanent home is going to be in our resurrected bodies. That is the state that we are going to dwell in forever. And so it makes sense that Scripture would talk far more about our life on the new earth than it would about the intermediary time period. Because as wonderful and as glorious and as blessed as this intermediary time period is going to be, It is, in some senses, a temporary stopover en route to the new earth. It is not going to be our eternal home. Now, Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, gives a great illustration of this. I'll adapt it for our purposes this morning. He says, imagine that you live in Los Angeles, and one day you are given an inheritance, a beautiful, gorgeous mansion in Miami, Florida. And when you go to Miami, this will be your permanent 
dwelling place, this beautiful mansion. And you are also given with that mansion a, a wonderful job doing what you've always wanted to do. And all your friends and family happen to live in Miami. And when you go to the airport in Los Angeles, you're given a ticket to go on a plane. And this ticket has a stopover, a layover in Dallas, Texas. Now, this layover is about two days long. And you board the plane, you exit in Dallas, and you find that you have some friends who happen to live in Dallas, Texas. They put you up in a five-star hotel. They take you to the greatest restaurants. You have a great night out on the town. They even happen to have uh, tickets to the Dallas Cowboy game, and you go to the game, and you're on the 50-yard line, have a great time, and you're just thinking to yourself as you're in Dallas, you're thinking like, wow, five-star hotel, great food, great friends, I'm at the Cowboy game, and this is just awesome, this is heaven. You imagine to yourself while you're in Dallas, it can't get any better than this. I mean, I just can't imagine life getting any better than it is right now, This is heaven. When the truth is, it's not your final destination. And as wonderful and as glorious and as blessed as your stay in Dallas, Texas is, it's just a stopover on the way to your permanent home, which is in Miami. And I believe that when we go and we die and we go to this place called the intermediate heaven, I believe that we are going to be saying, this is so glorious and so blessed and so amazing. This is far beyond my wildest dreams. I can't imagine life getting any better than this. This is heaven. I mean, just can't. I can't conceive of life getting any better than this. To be in the presence of Christ and to be glorified and to be in this beautiful place the scripture can only describe as paradise life cannot get any better when God says it's going to get better and as wonderful and as glorious as the intermediate heaven is it is not our final destination it is a temporary stopover en route to our permanent home which is the new earth You see, many Christians struggle with this whole idea because when they think of heaven, they think of experiencing physical death and then entering into a permanent state of sameness. Where for eternity we are the same. And that's not the biblical teaching regarding heaven. Heaven is not the end of the story. Heaven is the beginning of a glorious new story in which each chapter is better than the chapter that was before. And heaven is not a state of permanent sameness. It is a state of permanent progression and permanent learning and permanent growing and permanent receiving new grace and fresh avenues of grace that we've never experienced before. And that will never reach a state in heaven where we've reached a point where we've discovered it all or we've learned it all or we've received it all and we said there's nothing left to receive because God is infinite and an infinite resource cannot be exhausted. 
And so we need to get into our minds this whole idea of heaven, that when we go to the intermediate heaven, it is not physical death and then a permanent life of sameness. It is merely the first installment of a glorious new story that goes on and on forever and ever, a glorious story of permanent progression in which each chapter builds on the chapter before. And so as wonderful and as glorious and as magnificent as the intermediate heaven will be, it will merely be the first chapter. And although we will be perfect, we will still live in anticipation of future events to come where we will anticipate the resurrection and we will anticipate the creation of the new earth and we will anticipate the new Jerusalem. You might be saying, Dan, I don't get it. I thought perfect means that you don't change and perfect means that you don't anticipate anything more. And dear brothers and sisters, this is where we need to think more biblically than we do logically. Because logic says that if we're perfect, then we can't change and we can't experience anything better. But biblically, God says in the intermediate heaven, you're going to be perfect in the sense you're going to be made like Christ. But you're also going to anticipate greater things to come. One of the barriers that believers have when we think about heaven is we we try to use our logic more than we try to use the Bible. And we think ourselves through this and we say, I'm going to go to heaven, that means perfect. And perfect means sameness because if you're perfect, you can't grow. And that's not what the Bible says. We're going to be made perfect and yet that perfection will have a progression that is built into the perfection so that for all of eternity we will continue to grow and to learn new things. So what the Bible says about the intermediate heaven is that this is a glorious place. I mean, we're going to look at the scripture. It's a a glorious place. And I believe that if you did a survey of the believers who are in the intermediate heaven, they would all be saying it can't get any better than this. It is so marvelous that there's nothing left that we could want that is more. And yet we do anticipate more, because God has said there is more. Now, going back to our analogy, the travel analogy, traveling from L.A. to Miami, you understand that if you were given a brochure of this trip from Los Angeles to Miami, your brochure would say far more about Miami than it does about Dallas, wouldn't it? I mean, it would probably talk about Dallas, you know, good cowboy game, good restaurant, good hotel, but you're only going to be there for a couple of days and then you're moving on to your permanent destination. So we might expect a couple of sentences about Dallas, but we would expect the brochure to say far more about Miami than it does about Dallas. And the same is true with the intermediate state. When we go to Scripture, Scripture says far more about our life on the new earth than it does about this intermediary period because that is our permanent home. It's amazing, really. When you go and look at the descriptions of the new earth, which we'll look at next week, we find detail, we find even measurements, we find even the specific materials that will be found on the new earth. We find all of these specific uh, descriptions that just paint us a portrait of the new earth. When we look at the intermediary time period, there's enough in Scripture that we have a general idea of what it'll be like, but the greater descriptions are left for our future permanent home on 
the new earth. Now, with that said, I do believe that Scripture says enough about the intermediate state to inflame our hearts with joy, to set our hearts there, and to give us a glorious picture of what it will be like. And I want to just sum up the scriptural teaching on the intermediate state in three basic points. Okay, three basic points. We're going to, first of all, look at a person. Secondly, we're going to look at a portrait. And thirdly, we're going to look at some possibilities. Okay, so first, a person. Second, a portrait. And third, some possibilities. And we'll sum up the scriptural teaching in this way. First of all, a person. A person. When the Bible talks about the intermediate state, by far the truth that it emphasizes the most is that the intermediate state is a conscious, blessed enjoyment of the presence of a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. What Scripture emphasizes to our hearts possibly more than any other truth regarding this state, is that to die and to go to the intermediate heaven is to go directly into the presence of Jesus Christ and to experience a conscious, blessed enjoyment of His glory and the complete satisfaction of soul that comes from knowing Him and loving Him. It emphasizes to us that the intermediate state is the enjoyment of a person. This was what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, where he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, he said, I'm hard-pressed from both directions because I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul equated, even in the grammar of that sentence, that to depart from this earthly physical body is equal to being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I have the desire to depart this body and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. You see, Paul was the the foremost articulator of the doctrine of resurrection. Paul, when he looked at his future eschatology, he understood well this this intermediary period that there's going to be this time period that comes after physical death yet precedes resurrection. And yet his understanding of this time period was so compelling and so formative for him and so motivating that he said, I just want to go and to be in that intermediate heaven because to go there is to go and to be with Christ. And he said, to be with Christ is far better than anything I could ever experience here on earth. And so I feel this pressure. I, mean, I want to stay here because I want to serve Christ and I want to engage in, in gospel ministry and I want to be a blessing to the church and I want to serve other saints. But I feel this pressure because I want to depart and I want to go to the intermediate heaven which I will enjoy the conscious, blessed enjoyment of the presence of Jesus. In this passage, there is no indication of soul sleep There is no indication of God puts us in a holding tank where we wait for the future resurrection. There is no indication of a purgatory which is taught by the Catholic Church. 
there's only this concept, this simple concept that to die and to experience physical death is to enter directly into the conscious enjoyment of Jesus Christ. Paul uh, articulated the same theology in 2 Corinthians 5 or 6. He said, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Two times in two different ways, Paul said, if I'm here in the body, I'm absent from the presence of the Lord. If I'm away from the body, then I am present in the presence of the Lord. He said it both ways so that we don't get any misunderstanding that to die is to go directly into the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of the intermediate heaven when he saved the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23. 23 we, there's no rec- mention here of um, future resurrected bodies. And yet Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you that today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say to the thief on the cross, Today I'm going to send you to a holding tank and you're going to wait there for resurrection. Today I'm going to send you to go to sleep and you're going to wait there for at least 2,000 years until the resurrection occurs. He said, No, today you will be with me. To die and to go into the intermediate heaven is to go directly into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that glorious for us? Well, it's glorious because if you're a Christian, that is, your, that is your deepest heartfelt desire. It's to just be with Christ. I mean, you love Christ. You, um, you struggle with that love because we're in this world and this world, world fights for our attention. The world fights for our affections and we struggle with our sin. But if you... If you're a Christian, God has planted in your heart a longing and a desire to love Christ and to be in His presence. And you understand that as many joys are in this world and as many pleasures are in this world, that nothing compares to the superior satisfaction that comes by simply knowing Christ and being close to Him. And that nothing will satisfy your aching soul, except to be in the presence of Jesus. I've been a Christian for about 15 years now. I've had a lot of ups and downs in that time period. I've experienced a lot of great things. I've experienced some, some tough times. But I tell you that in that time period, and if you're a Christian, you, you know this, that the highest of highs, the most sweetest of satisfactions, the points in life where I was the most satisfied and the most joyful and the most fulfilled had nothing to do with, with, with stuff good happening to me or circumstances happening to me or, or, or um, you know, going to a good school or getting a good job or relationships. The highest of highs were those points in my life where I felt closest to Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you know that. You look back at your own life and you see that to be true. That as much as God has blessed us with so many other things, that the highest of highs and the peaks of our satisfaction have come when we are the closest to Jesus. And if that is our experience here on earth, what will it be like to be in His presence? What kind of soul satisfaction will we feel to be directly into the, in the presence of Christ 
where there is no more sin to hinder our fellowship with Him. There's no more sin to hinder our gaze into His beauty or His glory. What satisfaction will our souls feel to be directly into the presence of Christ? You see, I think if we did a survey of those into intermediate heaven, they would sum up their experience in two words. They would say to us, Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. And that there is no pleasure here on earth that compares with the superior satisfaction with being in Christ's presence. That to depart this body is to go and to be with Christ and that is far better than anything that we could ever experience here on earth. And that to be in the presence of Christ is to be made like Christ, is to be free from the effects of sin and to have nothing hindering our relationship with Christ. See, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. And there our hearts will be at rest because Jesus offers the superior satisfaction that nothing in this world can touch. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Oftentimes as Christians, we look at believers that God has taken early. We look at believers that God has taken maybe at a young age and we, we feel sorry for them because they weren't left here on earth for a longer period of time and Dear brothers and sisters, I think that if we knew what they were experiencing in the intermediate heaven, we wouldn't feel sorry for them. We'd feel sorry for us because they're with Christ and their hearts are satisfied and they're enjoying His glory and His beauty and they're in a place without sin or suffering and we're down here on this earth struggling in this sin-cursed world and we live in an inhospitable environment to our Christian faith and we live as aliens and strangers here and they're at home. You know, um, when I was in seminary, I had a classmate. His name was Buddy. And Buddy was, even in the short time that I knew him, was one of the godliest men that I knew. He had five children and a godly wife. And the Lord took him early. Uh, one night, he was driving with his son, um, on an, uh, just, just driving on a Friday night, and a drunk driver came and hit his car, and the Lord took him to heaven. And amazingly, his son was, was not harmed or escaped with minor injuries. And they said that Buddy, he was there in the car accident and he was, he was dying. He was ready to meet the Lord. And it said that he said to his son, uh, Buddy Jr., as, his, as the authorities arrived, he said to his son, his last words were, Son, you go to be with these men. And I'm going to go see Jesus. And you know, I just think about that. I just think of how his theology was held him in that time period. That he died well because he understood what the Bible said. That to depart is to be with Christ. And he could look death in the eye and he could say, I'm going to see Jesus. And I'm going to be in his presence. And you know, brothers and sisters, if, if we understand what the Bible says about the intermediate heaven, we will be equipped to die well. 
because we will say that all that physical death can do is to usher us directly into the presence of Christ, and that is all that my hopes and my dreams long for anyway, is to be with Christ. Well, the first thing that the Bible teaches us regarding the intermediate heaven is we are to think of a person, and the person is Jesus. There's a second thing that the Bible teaches us about the intermediate heaven, and that is the Bible gives us a portrait. A portrait. And if the person is Jesus, then the portrait is paradise. The portrait is paradise. Paradise is the New Testament's favorite word to describe the intermediate heaven. It's found three times in the New Testament as a term that summarizes the environment and the locality of the intermediate heaven. When Jesus had to sum up the intermediate heaven in one word, he used the word paradise. He said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul went up into the intermediate heaven. He was given a temporary experience in which he was taken up into heaven. Uh, no doubt to equip him for the suffering that he would endure on this earth. And he said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3, I know how such a man, he's talking of himself in the third person here, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows, but he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. In Revelation 2, 7, God says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So when the New Testament wants to sum up the locality of the intermediate heaven, it does so with the word paradise. Paradise. Now, I want you to note in each three of these scriptures, paradise is spoken of as an actual place with an actual location. Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said, I was caught up into paradise. God said in Revelation 2, The tree of life is in the paradise of God. Paradise is spoken of as an actual place with an actual location. It is not spoken of in mystical or ethereal terms. Um, Jesus didn't say, today you will float up in with me into this ghostly environment where we're going to float around on clouds. He said, no, today we are going to a place, and that place is paradise. Paradise is spoken of as an actual place with an actual location. You might be saying, uh, Dan, where is paradise? Where is that location? And I can't be too specific about this. I don't know exactly where paradise is, but if I have a guess, I would say that paradise is up. Because Jesus said, uh, Jesus, when he went into the intermediate heaven in Acts chapter 1, he went up into heaven. And they stood up watching him and asking when he's going to come back down. The point is that paradise is spoken of as an actual place with an actual location. And paradise may have more physical characteristics than we might first conceive. Actually, the term paradise is taken from a Persian word which refers to a garden or a, a walled garden. 
It was a word that was used to speak of the beautiful royal gardens in King Cyrus's royal palace. It is also a Greek term. The Greek term paradise was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the Garden of Eden. So the New Testament term paradise, when it was used in biblical times, did not refer to a mystical existence or an ethereal place. It was used to describe actual physical locations with physical characteristics such as the Garden of Eden or such as a royal palace in a beautiful uh, king's palace. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when the thief on the cross heard these words, today you will be with me in paradise, he would not have conceived of going up and floating around on a cloud with Jesus. He would have heard the word as referring to an actual place that he is going to go and be with Jesus. And what he would have thought of in his mind is the most beautiful physical location that the people in his culture could conceive. And the most beautiful location that the people in his culture could conceive of was a garden. It was a garden. Now, I was working on this message um, at a Barnes & Noble that sometimes is my office at times when I need some, some quiet and I was working on my laptop and I looked up and I saw on the bookshelf there was a calendar and the calendar said, Island Paradise. And what was very interesting to me as I looked at this calendar and it said Paradise on it was that the picture on the calendar was not a bunch of ghosts or a bunch of spirits floating around. And it wasn't a mystical idea. But on this calendar was Island Paradise and there was an actual portrait of a beautiful location. And the location had a beautiful ocean with um, the waves coming in to the sand, a beautiful sandy beach. There was a palm tree that hung overhead and a nice shade and a beautiful sky. And it struck me that even in the American mindset, when we think of the word paradise, we don't envision an ethereal existence. We envision an actual place. A beautiful place that is the most, has the most beautiful physical properties that we can conceive. And the same would have been true in Jesus' day. When Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, a thief on the cross would have envisioned a place. A place with beautiful physical properties. When we think of the word, the intermediate heaven, we are to think of a person and we are to think of a portrait. The person is Jesus and the portrait is paradise. Now, once again, this is where we need to think more biblically than we do logically. Logic would state that we have an existence here on earth which we are in an earthly body. And one day we will be given a glorified physical body at the moment of our resurrection. Therefore, logic would stay, state that the intermediary period is a period that has no bodily characteristics. 
I mean, the only alternative to earthly body and resurrected body is no body. We're just ghosts. We're just spirits. But while I cannot be dogmatic about this point, I have to challenge it on scriptural terms. The only alternative to physical earthly body and glorified resurrected bodies is not ghostly existence. If you think back to the passage in Matthew chapter 17, it says that Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus and appeared in front of Peter, and Peter said, I'm going to make you three tabernacles. And if you remember and picture that scene there, we piece together the eschatology here. Moses and Elijah would not have received their resurrected bodies yet. We understand the resurrection of Old Testament saints still occurs sometime in the future. They had departed their earthly body. They had not received their resurrected bodies, and yet at the same time they appeared in physical form in front of Peter. Now this does not prove to us that we will receive a temporary body in the intermediate heaven, but it does demonstrate the point that the only alternative to earthly body and resurrected body is not ghostly existence. It is possible for God to grant us temporary bodily form with characteristics that are physical to dwell in a place called paradise, which the New Testament hearers would have envisioned as an actual place with physical properties. Now again, this is where we run into the fact that Scripture doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the intermediate heaven, but we do have these things indicated to us in Scripture. We are to think of a person who is Jesus, and we are to think of a portrait which is paradise. Now with that in mind, let me move to my third point, which is some possibilities. Some possibilities. Um, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. This is not uh, the normal way that we preach the word. Um, normally when we preach the word, we major on the majors and minor on the minors. We don't like to speculate about certain issues which are not explicitly stated in Scripture. However, I do believe that it would be profitable for us to consider some possibilities regarding the intermediate heaven, which are neither explicitly stated in Scripture, but some Scriptures may indicate to us would be a possibility. These are points that I cannot be 100% dogmatic about. I cannot take my stand here. If I'm open to correction, I'm open to being wrong, but I do believe that we have enough in Scripture that we would be given some possibilities that are open to us that may be true in regards to the intermediate state or the intermediate heaven. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we are given a scene of martyrs. Uh, verse 9 says, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now here we are given a glimpse of a certain group of saints who were martyred for their faith. Maybe asking, who are these martyrs? 
the best understanding appears to be the context would lead us to understand that these are martyrs who have been slain for their faith in the seven-year tribulation period, which is yet to come, otherwise known as Daniel's 70th week. This is the final period before the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is a seven-year period. Revelation 5 would indicate to us, and Revelation 6 would indicate to us that with the seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments, we are in this period known as the seven-year tribulation. And thus, the best understanding of this text would appear to be that these are those who have been martyred for their faith in the seven-year tribulation period. These are tribulation martyrs. Now, again, I can't be absolutely dogmatic about that because the text doesn't explicitly state that these are tribulation martyrs and it doesn't include any other martyrs that may have been martyred through the church, uh, the church age. But that seems to be the best understanding of this text. Now, if these are tribulation martyrs, we would understand that these are those saints who are in an intermediary period, an intermediate state or an intermediate heaven. The best understanding as we piece together the eschatology is that the resurrection of tribulation saints will not occur until the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And so these are believers who have experienced physical death and yet not have received their resurrected bodies as of yet. They are in an intermediary period between physical death and physical resurrection. Now again, if these are tribulation martyrs, and if they have not received their physical resurrected bodies as of yet, we know some very interesting possibilities about the intermediate heaven. I don't know if these can be applied generally to all church-age believers of all time. I do know that if this is the best understanding of the text, it does open us some possibilities for the intermediate heaven. And all I'm trying to do here is to establish that there are some possibilities that we may not have thought of that expose in our hearts some unbiblical preconceptions about heaven. The first possibility we see in this text is uh, we see that these martyrs have physical characteristics. They have physical characteristics. It says, John says in verse 9, that he saw the souls who had been slain because of the word of God. It's difficult to see how he would have seen spirits or ghosts. Verse 10 says they cried out with a loud voice, which indicates they had some kind of vocal apparatus, perhaps a mouth from which to cry out of. And the clincher is verse 11. It says that there was given to each of them a white robe. It's difficult to see how ghosts or spirits would be given clothes to wear in terms of a white robe. And so we know here that there are some physical characteristics assigned to these believers even though it seems that the best understanding is that they have not received their resurrected bodies as of yet. Secondly, we note that these martyrs have awareness of time. They have awareness of time. They cry out, verse 10, How long, O Lord? There is awareness of uh, progression of time. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? In verse 11, they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed should be completed. So the second observation we make here is that these saints have awareness of time. Thirdly, we 
see here that they have memory. They remember what has happened to them when they were on earth and lived their earthly existence. They know that they were martyred for their faith and they know who did it. They know why they did it. And they're crying out here, O Lord, how long until you judge these people for their wickedness? They remember their lives on earth. They remember even the bad parts of their lives on earth, such as when they were killed for their faith. Now again, many Christians think more logically than biblically. They say, wait a second, when we go to heaven, we're not going to remember anything on earth because if you remember something on earth, it diminishes your happiness in heaven. Well, that's logic. That's not necessarily biblical. Jesus, for instance, remembers everything about his earthly life, but that does not diminish Jesus' happiness in heaven. And so just, that, just because these saints remember their lives on earth doesn't mean that their happiness in the intermediate heaven is diminished in any way. Fourthly, we observe about these saints that they have awareness of what is happening on earth. They're looking at what's happening on earth and they're saying, wait a second, Lord, there's a lot of wicked people running around. How long until you judge them? They're not in this uh, blissful state of forgetfulness where they're just like, you know, Jesus, 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 and they don't understand what's happening on earth. They're consumed with the worship of God, to be sure, and they're consumed with being in the presence of Jesus Christ, but they also have an awareness of God's unfolding plan as it unfolds in the course of human history on earth. And they're looking at what's happening on earth and they're saying, Lord, how long? When is the judgment going to come? Now again, I can't be dogmatic about exactly who these people are. I can't be dogmatic about um, exactly that we know clearly here that they haven't received their resurrected bodies yet, but I do believe we have enough as we piece together Scripture to open these up as possibilities. It is entirely possible when we go to the intermediate heaven that we will have physical characteristics even though we have not yet received our resurrected bodies. It is possible that we would have awareness of time that we would be aware of the years that are passing as we look forward to the future historical date of the physical resurrection of our bodies. It is possible that we would have memory of our lives here on earth. A memory is a basic part of our identity and who we are. It, w- it, w- it wouldn't make sense that God would uh, wipe away our memories. And how could He wipe away our memories if... Uh, without wiping away our identity. I'm just suggesting this as a possibility. It is also possible that we would be aware of what is happening on earth even as we are in paradise with Jesus Christ and enjoying His glory. In fact, it would make more sense biblically that we would be aware of what is happening on earth because what is happening on earth is God's unfolding plan of redemption and it would make sense that as believers in Christ we would be interested in God's being glorified in the unfolding plan that He is working out through the course of human history. It wouldn't make biblical sense that we would just forget it all and not be interested in any of that because we are in heaven. Now turn back to Luke chapter 16. This will be our final passage we'll look at this morning. Luke chapter 16. Again, this is a passage that raises the same possibilities that Revelation 6 raises without being clearly specific enough that we would be able to be absolutely dogmatic about these things. It does raise the same possibilities. Luke chapter 16 is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man received good things in his life and the Lazarus received 
bad things in his life. And when the rich man died, he went to a place called Hades, which we understand would be the intermediate hell. There's no mention here of resurrection unto judgment, so this would be the intermediate hell. Lazarus died and went into a place called Abraham's bosom, which we would understand as the intermediate heaven. Again, there's no mention here of resurrection unto eternal life, so this would be a place of an intermediary period, an intermediate heaven. Now, there's debate about this passage, Luke 16, verse 19, as to whether this is a parable, a fictional story, or if this is an actual, non-fictional story which actually occurred. That is entirely a possibility. If this is a parable, this is the only parable of Jesus in which he assigned to the main character a name, which is Lazarus. In all of other Jesus' parables, he talks about a man or a woman or a father or a son, but he doesn't assign a character a name. Here he assigns a name, Lazarus, to the, na- to the main character, which would leave open the possibility that this was an actual man, and this is a non-fictional story that actually occurred. Now, even if this is a parable, and if this is a fictional account... We understand that Jesus told parables which were entirely consistent with reality. I mean, in the parable of the sower and the seed, you don't see Jesus talking about, here's a guy who went around and he started throwing seed and then a leprechaun came out of the sky and came over a rainbow and landed on a pot of gold. I mean, he told stories which were consistent with reality. And so even if this was a fictional story, and even if this was something that was not actually uh, happened in history, we would expect Jesus' explanation of the story to be consistent with eternal realities. And so he tells the story. Verse 22, that I came about, the poor man died, that is Lazarus, he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The bosom simply refers to the chest. This pictures Lazarus as reclining at a banquet at Abraham's chest, which to the Jews, which had been the most exalted and blessed state that they could conceive I don't know if this was literally he was reclining at Abraham's chest or if this is a metaphorical explanation of the exalted nature of the intermediate heaven. In any case, we understand that Lazarus was taken up into the intermediate heaven. The rich man, verse 22, was also died and was buried. And in Hades, that is the intermediate hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And the point of the story is not to say that rich men go to hell and poor men go to heaven. 
The point of the story is really the final verse that Scripture is sufficient to convert the soul. And if the unbeliever will not listen to the Word of God, they will not repent no matter how many miracles are shown to them because the greatest miracle has been put on historical display and that is God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and they still won't come because the issue isn't miracles. The issue is they will not receive the Word of God. And so this rich man says, you know what, it doesn't matter if somebody goes and talks to your five brothers. If they don't listen to the Word of God, they're not going to listen no matter what happens. That's the point of the story. The story does indicate to us some possibilities regarding the intermediate hell and the intermediate heaven. And they are the same possibilities that we saw in Revelation chapter 6. First of all, that there may be physical characteristics in the intermediate heaven as well as the intermediate hell. You notice here that Lazarus is spoken of and he has a finger, verse 24. His finger has a fingertip, verse 24. The rich man in the intermediate hell has a tongue. He asked Lazarus in physical terms to go and dip his finger in the water and to cool off his tongue, that he is in agony in this flame. All of that suggests physical characteristics even though Lazarus has not received his physical resurrected body yet, and the rich man has not received his resurrection unto judgment as of yet. Secondly, we see awareness of time. We see progression of history. Uh, Here in reference more to the intermediate hell, where the rich man knows that his five brothers are living on earth, and he begs that they would go and someone would go and tell them about this place that they would not come here. We see awareness of earthly events, that the rich man is aware of what's going on on earth. He's aware that his five brothers are living in unbelief. It's not wiped out from his consciousness. And we see memory. We see memory. Um, Abraham says to the rich man, verse 25, Remember that during your life you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise bad things. Once again, we cannot be dogmatic whether this is an actual story or whether this is a parable. If this is a parable, we expect it to be consistent with biblical truth. But it does raise the same possibilities as Revelation chapter 6. And the point of all of this is really to say that we may have some unbiblical preconceptions about the intermediate heaven, which are simply not found in the Bible. They are found through our own logic or our own intuition, and we need to grapple with this And ask ourselves, are we getting our view of heaven from the word or from the world? Where do we get the idea that the intermediate heaven would not have physical characteristics and that we would be ghosts? Is it from the Bible or is it from our own logic? Where do we get the idea that when we go to the intermediate heaven that we would have no awareness of time, that time would be no more and we would just blank out for all of eternity? Is it from the Bible or is it from our own logic? Where do we get the idea that our memories will be wiped out, that we'll not remember anything that was done on earth? Is it from the Bible or is it from our logic? And where do we get the idea that when we go to the intermediate heaven, all awareness of earthly and historical events will be absolutely wiped out? Is that from the Bible? All I'm suggesting to you is that these are some possibilities and that they may expose some unbiblical preconceptions that may be in our hearts. Now, the point of all this 
is to say this. Now, you've all been very patient. We've covered a lot of material, but you need to listen to me now because this is the point of all that we have talked about. The point of all that we have talked about is to say simply that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And when you die, you will either spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And we can't say it any more simply or any more clearly or any more directly than this. When you die, one minute after you die, you will either go to an intermediate heaven and there experience conscious, blessed enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ in paradise and there to await greater future chapters which are to come, each chapter which will be greater than the chapter than the one before. Or when you die, you will go to Hades, the intermediate hell. And there you will reside in conscious torment like the rich man in Luke 16. And you will long for someone to come and to relieve your misery. And yet that will not be the end of the story because you will still await a resurrection unto judgment in which death and Hades in Revelation 20 are thrown into the lake of fire and you will still await a final judgment. To go to the intermediate heaven is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of a glorious new story. To go to the intermediate hell is not the end of the story. It is to begin a new horrific chapter in which each chapter is worse than the one before. This is what happens one minute after you die. And I humbly want to say to you this morning as clearly and as directly and as lovingly as I can that nothing in your life Nothing in your life that is happening right now is more important than this question. Where are you going one minute after you die? I don't want to be insensitive to the trials that you're facing. I don't want to be insensitive to the circumstances you're facing. But what I'm saying to you with all the love in my heart is there is nothing more important than this. Where are you going one minute after you die? And I want to talk to the children who are with us this morning. If you're under, old enough to understand what I'm talking about, you're old enough to believe in the gospel and to have your sins forgiven, you need to ask your mommy and daddy tonight to explain to you the gospel that you can believe in Christ. And I want to talk to you adults that if you have believed in Christ, there's nothing else that matters that comes close. And the financial system can go to pieces and the world can take our jobs and our homes and our money and our families. But if you're going to heaven, you have reason to rejoice no matter what else is going on in your life. And if you don't have Christ, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how great your job is. I don't care how great your relationship is. I don't care how great things are going for you in life right now. You have reason to be terrified because the Bible says that it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And you need to make this the day of your salvation. You need to believe in Christ. You need to confess your sin to a holy God. You need to cry out to forgiveness. You need to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf on the cross at Calvary. You need to repent of your sins and turn and to embrace the gospel. And if you do, the Bible says 
that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you can walk out of this room knowing that if you were to die today, and who says that you will not die today? You can walk out of this room saying, if I die today, I know where I'm going. I'm going to paradise. I'm going directly into the presence of Jesus. I'm going to go be with Jesus. And one day, he's going to give me a new body and put me on a new earth. And I will live forever there. You know what God's heart for you this morning is? He says it real clearly. Verse Revelation 22. So the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life. Take it. You come. Come and take the water of life without cost because Jesus has already paid the cost at the cross of Calvary. Verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's bow in prayer together. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank You for... Just look at these glorious things. Who is sufficient to speak of these things? Who is sufficient to grasp the realities that we have just spoken of? And yet, Father, we pray that your Spirit would do a work in our hearts. May our eyes and our hearts and our passions be fixed on heaven. And, Father, we long to be with Jesus, for that is far better than anything we would face on this earth. Father, we pray that if there's anyone among us who has not yet believed in Christ, would this be the day of their salvation? Would they come and take the water of life without cost, that they may have eternal life? Thank you for this time. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.